0: Hey friends, we've got an exciting program that I want to share with you, our upcoming Climate Leadership Accelerator into the arena. It's designed for those of us who feel compelled to influence climate leadership in our organizations and communities. In the program, you'll deepen your understanding of the systems operating within the climate crisis and connect with an incredible network of leaders, challenge your own assumptions and develop a hopeful framework for action. So, head to smallgiants.com.au/slash into the arena to learn more and apply.
1: Hi, I'm Nathan Scolaro, editor of Dumbo Feather Magazine. Thanks for joining me for this month's podcast episode. Sarah Wilson is our guest today. She's a best-selling author activist, self-described minimalist, many of you will know her from the massively successful I Quit Sugar movement, which she founded nearly 10 years ago. She's also written about her experiences of anxiety in the book First We Make the Beast Beautiful, and more recently about what's being asked of us in the midst of multiple crises in the book This One Wild and Precious Life. The conversation you're about to hear features in our current issue of Dumbo Feather magazine, which is all about rest. Rest is a form of resistance to the systems that keep us on that treadmill. Rest is a gateway back to our wild and wonderful selves. I love the way Sarah talks about the importance of pulsing in this chat, between rest, restoring ourselves, and turning up the dial on our activism, on being of wholehearted service to the world. There are so many other really useful and wonderful reflections on the topic in this issue of the magazine, You can purchase it over at the Dumbo Feather website or at your local newsagent or specialty store. Now, over to Barry, our publisher, who held this remarkable conversation with Sarah.
0: I love the title of your book, which comes from my favourite Mary Oliver poem, called The Summer Day. Given you are a fellow lover of poetry, shall I read it to us? Please. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she shifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. What I do know how to do is pay attention. Yeah. That's the bit that is key to so much in life. You know, as you know, I talk a bit about coincidences in the book and these weird serendipitous moments seem to happen to me all the way through the journey. And you now people have always asked me, hang on, how did that happen to you? And what do you mean that happened at the same time? I'm like, it happens to everyone. The difference is I've trained myself to pay attention. And if there's a life skill that I could say is one that is worth mastering in this lifetime as a recipe for joy, it's to learn to pay attention. That's it. Beautiful. And, and I love the tagline of your book, which is called This One Wild and Precious Life, the tagline, A hopeful path forward in a fractured world. So how did you come to these ideas? And I, I would also argue in the poem, the other thing that's really potent for me especially yeah. at the moment is that she lies down in the grass And he's paying attention to a grasshopper. It's such a small and insignificant thing to do with a day, with an afternoon. And I feel like in your book, you're talking about paying attention. It's a very thoughtful and discerning attention. Yeah. There's three parts to the book. One part is really about the fractured world and why we've landed where we are today. There's so many forces. 23 years of researching, living it out through the climate movement, then, of course, into the bushfires earlier this year, and then, of course, COVID. And just as I was sending it to print, the Black Lives Matters stuff as well. And now, of course, we've got the recession and the whole unknownness of, of the future. So I was sort of living it out in real time. And I, first of all, explore why it is that we came into this space of fracturedness. We need to have that understanding. So we stop blaming, we stop polarizing further. The other half of the book is to actually map out a hopeful path. My idea of hope becomes quite specific. Why did I write the book? I'd written First We Make the Beast Beautiful about my own journey. So I did that journey with my own personal anxiety. It was a really healing process for me. And I went on tour around the world with the book. And then what I realised is that the anxiety had gone global. So it was now a completely broad-based despair and the figures were playing it all out. In the US, the life expectancy dropped for young people for the first time in recorded history. That's because of diseases of despair, opioids, alcohol, abuse, and suicide. Now, that is a tragic state of affairs. For a species that's come to the top of their food chain and the top of their evolution, to have young people dying of diseases of despair, we've, of course, watched various species become extinct And that was causing a type of anxiety. There was this sense that everything was wrong. We were not living how we were meant to live. And so I really wanted to go on a similar exploration, not an inwards journey, which is where we've been at for a while, but to go outwards. The world was calling us outwards. And I quote um, James Hollis, who's an incredible Jungian psychiatrist in the US, and he's written beautiful books. I interviewed him and he said, our souls are calling us to an appointment with life. Our despair is the trigger global anxiety is our souls knocking on the door going, guys, show up. Life is asking you to roll your sleeves up and get shit done. So I was very much feeling that, yet I was surrounded by this world of self-care and soothing yoga classes. And I was surrounded with people going, oh yes, I'm very self-aware and woke. Um, However, I'm not interested in politics. And I was like, that's not working for me. I was also watching the climate movement getting no traction. After the bushfires, I thought, right, finally, Australians will get this. Well, you know what? They didn't. The gap between those who believe in the climate science and those who don't just got bigger. So something was missing in the way that these messages were getting through, in the way that we were living our lives. And so I went off to explore that. I don't want to give too much away. However, my answer is really simple. It's kind of like, go straight to it. Do not pass go. And that to it is nature. What we are disconnected from is each other, ourselves, even more importantly, but most importantly, we're disconnected from life. We're disconnected from nature. We're disconnected from our true nature. And then I, I hiked around the world. I'd been hiking around the world for two years, but by the time I finally worked out my hopeful path forward. And the hiking has always been something I've done to help with my bipolar disorder and the various other things that I've quote-unquote got. Then I drill down into science of being in nature and why staring at a grasshopper can actually bring us back to the very essence, the grist of life. It's actually a really poignant and beautiful moment in the book. I don't know much about your story. I I understood from what you had written that you really suffered and experienced volatile mental health challenges at times. You write about it really beautifully and then how you talked about climbing a mountain on a day that you felt it starting to scratch at the surface and you walk up the mountain to heal that oncoming feeling and I just found it so beautiful to read. Yeah, it's a conversation. Hiking is a conversation and it's a conversation where you take control and I mean control in a gentle sense. You are responsible and a big part of the trajectory of the book and the penultimate chapter is called Becoming Adult is to encourage humanity to step out of adolescence. We have been in the collective adolescence and it's about stepping into our full adulthood. I think that's resonating for people. In cultures past, we had initiation ceremonies. We no longer have a moral framework to work within. Humans need to be bound to be able to be free. We used to have religious ceremonies, rites of passage. We had trade unions that ensured the Sabbath was, in fact, respected. We had a day of rest. We had human resources departments that would make sure that we had enough time to rest before coming back to the conveyor belt the next morning. And we had moral discussion. We watched the news once a day, maybe twice, and we had time to talk about it around the dinner table in a discerning fashion. Today we have none of those moral guardrails and so we have cocooned ourselves in a state of overwhelm in this suspended stage of adolescence and it is doing us the worst disservice. All of us crave growing up and we need to grow up and step to our edge to be able to save this one, Wild and Precious Life, which is essentially where I arrive at at the end of the book, an inspired and very fresh and doable rally call to ensure we all get on board. We all do whatever it takes and that's my big motto. People say to me, well, what should I do? What's the one thing I should do? I'm like, to use a Pima children quote, start where you are and then do everything you can. My everything you can will be different to somebody else's everything you can. I don't have children. I, I have certain capacities, you know. I'm actually going to talk to that because yeah. I... Interrupt at any time because I will keep talking. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I'm with you. I needed to talk to you today, every day. Um, but mm-hmm. I want to get back to wokeness and yep. being woke and... Uh, what really got me talking to you was someone sent me your incredible article that was published in The Guardian on conspiritualism. Yep. It's the first time I've read your writing. I thought it was brilliant and brave to write things that challenge conspiracy theories and social media groupthink. Because everybody's scared. I noticed that no mainstream paper had really written about it. No journalists, no influencers game to actually put their hand up and go, hang on guys, this is not right. So what gave you the gumption to write the piece? The piece is incredibly thoughtful, incredibly thought through. I want to read now, the wellness realm has fallen into conspiritualism. The collision of new age light and love with the conspiratorial world of QAnon may seem surprising, but as a retired veteran of the well-being industry, Sarah Wilson can see the link. And then you go on, and I wrote here in capitals, best paragraph ever, <laughs> you wrote this. Truth light then conflates with what I call spiritualism light. Contemporary spiritualism has tended to cherry-pick the love and light feel-good bits of the various traditions, the bits that promote personal freedom and individuality, leaving out the responsibility, service and the sacrifice to the greater good. We connect to our yoga mats and go inward to connect to ourselves. We attend to self-care, I love this, and our gut microbiology, <laughs> but eschew politics and heavy stuff. Yeah. I felt liberated when I read it because of how it's so perfectly, tonally articulated that craziness where progressive liberal ideology conflates with the hardest alt-right conservative madness and doesn't even recognise itself. It is the me and the mine and the I over the we and the ours and the yeah. collective. The two extremes have done this kind of dozy do around the outside of the group and met each other in this weird Venn diagram overlapping. It's truly weird. They both emanate from the same source and that is neoliberalism and 50 to 100 years... Potentially longer of capitalist thinking, which is all about the individual. It is all about getting rid of those moral umpires because they get in the way of the individual and the market system and everything. And of course, that's also what's led to coronavirus, if we're going to be really honest. I mean, coronavirus has happened because we have a planet that can't hold this many humans and this much consumption. The virus starts. It spreads like wildfire. And you've got the climate crisis and then you've got the Black Lives Matters in inequality piece and the polarisation happening as a result of have and have not splitting even further apart. So it's all connected to that neoliberal model. And so I get it. I understand it. And I'm really glad I went and deep dived down rabbit holes to understand the issue better because really we're all wanting to belong. We're all scared. Conspiracy theories happen during a crisis and the wellness community who are the worried well, they come from the right place. Totally. I've found out subsequently that some people I love are down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Everybody knows somebody. Everybody goes, oh, there's this person I know on Facebook who I thought was really nice. Yeah, they're a bit anti-vax. They're into this and that, but now they're Trump supporters. Not just Trump supporters, but QAnon is an anti-Semitic platform, and I'm starting it's it's racist, misogynist. It is all about creating chaos. It is all about spiking a civil war. That's their motivation. They revert to the same old tropes child sex trafficking now there is a child sex trafficking issue in the world without a doubt but i don't think daniel andrews is storing children in tunnels under melbourne cbd at the moment which is a theory that QAnon fans have spread around the world everyone read that article it's fucking (laughs) how did you have the gumption to write the piece Well, I am 46 and I've ceased to care about a lot of things that I was told to care about for the first 46 years of my life on this planet. I give zero fucks about certain things and I give a whole lot of fucks about other things. And I think the times are such that there's a lot of women who are starting to find a very particular voice. I'm thinking Jane Fonda. She is awesome. I remember Helen Garner, I think it was, said that she loved turning 50 because she could finally stop laughing at men's jokes. And what she really meant by that was that if a joke wasn't funny, don't laugh. Oh, I don't have to anymore. I don't have to please anyone. I don't have to make myself feel safe. I don't have the gumption. I've really got quite fierce. The fact is, as the environmental situation has got urgent, as the world's pain has got more and more urgent, I feel like I haven't got time to waste with trolls or anything like that. Do you read trolls? I do and I engage with them to a certain extent until I get the answers I need. So I ask questions because I genuinely want to learn and even if I disagree with their points, but I can see where their psychology is coming from or their pain is coming from or whatever. Every now and then I go, hmm, haven't thought of that. Maybe I am really wrong on this piece over here. And in some ways I see it as a spiritual practice. Mm. I don't think everyone should. But I'm at a stage in my life where I've faced my death on several occasions and I've had to make a choice to live. Now, when you do that, when you make a choice to live, you know, you're going to own this life. And that's what I decided in my mid-30s. And what that meant, and I talk about this a bit in the book, quoting both Virginia Woolf and Elizabeth Gilbert, funnily enough, it means that I have to choose a path of my own that's quite perilous. So I've had to make sacrifices. However, it's also brought me untold joy and connection and openness that I never thought I would have in this lifetime. I suppose I almost have a kamikaze approach. Friends of mine, loved ones often worry about me. They go, are you trying to get yourself into trouble? Quite often I am. I go to the edge and I'm more alive and it's my bipolar condition that takes me there. I have to go there to feel of service in this lifetime. I want to be of service. Are you crying? Oh, I'm sorry if I if I. No, no, it's just exquisite. I'm crying from joy and uh, admiration. I was born in the 70s. I don't think I get triggered. Um, <laughs> we don't know that terminology, do we? I don't. I, you know, I would hope that that word disappears mm. from its current use because I, I would say there are there are richer words than triggered words like provoked, yeah, motivated motivated, challenged, who are a human being in an exchange with your own life and the world. And it acknowledges that discomfort is required. This is what's missing from dialogue today, and I talk about this as another part of why we're at where we are, is that we have cocooned ourselves from everything except for real life. And you say it so brilliantly, there's this, I have to pull it out, great, research done via YouTube is not your own research, it's an algorithm at play that handcuffs us to our worst cognitive biases. Everything about what's going on in those dark tunnels is preventing us from doing what we know we need to be doing, which is coming together and being uncomfortable. So we've got a dialogue in this contemporary life where discomfort is to be eradicated and avoided at all costs. And I say this again in the book. It's horrible, isn't it, when you write a book and you find yourself quoting yourself? (laughs) We don't have to wait for anything. We don't have to delay gratification. We don't have to sit in unknowingness. We don't have to sit in a fear that we're not liked. We don't have to wonder how long our pizza is going to take because there's a little orb on the app that shows us where it's working its way through the suburbs, right? God forbid we'd have to sit there and not know for five minutes how long it's going to take. But the point is, is that we've become inoculated from anything that is uncomfortable. It's been just wiped out. We're like an open wound with no scab. We've got no capacity to deal with real life and real life is about to get crazy real, crazy uncomfortable. The world is warming up. We're going to have to face untold deaths. Now, what's happening with COVID is nothing compared with what we've got ahead of us in terms of the climate, refugees and stuff like that. There's going to be all kinds of recession issues. This has been predicted for quite some time. There's a whole heap of climate tipping points that are going to make life very, very uncomfortable. And we are the most vulnerable and unable to cope that we have ever been in human history. I did an address to the National Press Club at the end of last year on resilient, or actually I was asked to talk about anxiety in children. And, in fact, the talk turned around to the fact that we don't have an anxiety epidemic. We have a lack of resilience epidemic. And this was, of course, pre-COVID and it was pre bushfires And what do you know? Kids aren't coping because they haven't been given the skills to deal with everyday discomfort, let alone the extreme discomfort that they're now having to face. Big reason why I dedicated the book to young people. We owe them so much more. Okay, so I have three young people. I've personally devoted my life to be of service. Don't know if I'm as brave as you, and I don't know if it's because I'm a shield for my children or if I'm using them as a shield. Yeah, the fact is, we're also complicit in this clusterfuck. Unlike in previous times in history, and this is something that I talk about in that Guardian piece, we always had an enemy during a war. There was the communists, there was the Nazis, and um, there's always been an identifiable enemy. And if we don't have one, we create one conveniently. We might create these mythical enemies. Now, at the moment, The enemy, realistically, is us. We are both victim and perpetrator. And in terms of our ability to cognitize that, it is supremely difficult. So I try to remind myself of this. For everybody who might be having a go at me or being resistant to climate change activism, it's essentially they're grappling with that cognitive disconnect, victim and perpetrator. We also know that we are the only ones that can fix this problem but it's such a gargantuan thing, right? Most people go into overwhelm. I talk about this in the book. We have the fight or fight response when there's a crisis and then there's also the freeze response. When you have people who've got horrible trauma happening, they're often going to shut down. That is what we're doing at the moment. We are that deer going, can't fight it, can't flee it, I'm going to shut down. And every now and then you rear your head and troll someone or, throw an insult and create an enemy because that's another way of surviving is to create this enemy. The China virus, you know, a philanthropist who's selfish, we just, they're all so obvious and they're so clichéd, but that's our way of surviving cognitively around something so overwhelming. Now what I say in the book is we are in a state of overwhelm and all those yogis who are saying I'm not into reading the news, oh, no, I'm not political. I first of all say the spiritual has always been political. What do you think Jesus was? What do you think Gandhi was? They were political, first and foremost. And you know what? If you're quote, unquote, woke, you've got a responsibility, right? Just go and read the newspapers and get online. But the other thing is that all of that lovely, you know, incense and candles and rainbows and unicorns, it's another way of shutting down and avoiding what we need to do. What we need to be doing is firing up. Now, what I'm seeing happening we're frogs in the proverbial pot of boiling water going, oh, it's nice and warm in here. I'm a bit sleepy and lazy, can't be bothered to get engaged, can't be bothered to get fired up. Also, feeling pretty fucking traumatised and king hit by the confluence of everything. Oh, that's right. We want to stay in a nice warm pot. I mean, do you think I enjoy at times doing what I do? I've got better things than writing a Guardian article on this stuff, I assure you. I don't get paid for that. I've got other things to do, and this is what I say to people when they doubt climate scientists and climate activists. First of all, have you met a rich climate activist? Have you met a rich climate scientist? I haven't met one. Secondly, all of us, we'd rather be at the beach. We'd rather be watching Netflix. Zero thoughts in my head. I don't have that option. The point is um, I don't do this for kicks, right? Activism is something that we need to do to save our lives, even at an individual level that ascetic state, and the Greeks refer to this term is a a state of listful slothfulness where we just can't process things and we find it easier to slide in to self-indulgence, me, me, me me-ness, rah, rah, rah. This has existed throughout history during the time of crisis. There's those who are fired up and speaking truth to power, and then there's those that want to sit on the proverbial couch with their phone on Twitter in one hand, the remote in the other, and the world coming to them and doing all the work for them. Every philosopher throughout history has observed this, and they've all got theses on struggle is what makes life meaningful. This issue of of the magazine is that idea of the NAP ministry, She's an African-American woman in the US. She's done a Masters of Divinity. She's quite an an interesting theologian, actually. And just the way she talks about rest as resistance and as an activist thing to do, wherein you disengage from the hyper adrenalized consumerist, capitalist system, and the place from which you re-engage is different and new. It's interesting that it comes out of that African resistance movement because the whole word self care came about. I think her name was Audrey Lord. She was a black female activist in the nineteen sixties and she came up with this word of self care because people who've had to fight from a base or a place of been in the minority status, it's an exhausting fight. And so this idea of self care and rest when you're in that space is absolutely important. I would say, however, Barry, for the bulk of the population that you and I are talking to here, and I know that many people are exhausted by the overwhelm and the crisis. I don't know that there is a Pervasive issue of overwhelm and exhaustion from fighting. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. Actually, what's great about what you're saying, it brings me to one of the most beautiful things you said that I've read in your book, and that was on asking beautiful questions. Ah, yeah. So, in terms of techniques, let's get practical here. Techniques for setting up a new paradigm where we don't adrenally bolt from a tiger the whole time, we've actually got something more sustainable and joyful. There's a couple of things. Soul nerding is this idea of mindfully applying yourself to the arts, to beautiful poetry, literature, science, evolutionary biology, etc., in such a way that you're a bit like Mary Oliver lying on the grass with that grasshopper. You're paying beautiful, sustained, discerning attention. And I go through the science as to why that works. But there's some other techniques in the book. One of them is called philotimos. It's a Greek word that means radical kindness to strangers. And I have a whole hike that I do in Crete. Anyone who's been to Greece has probably experienced this idea of just random Greek men handing you a fee, a still hitchhike around Greece, and I'll get picked up by someone and they bring you into your home. And it's just what they do. And this notion of philotomos is something they grow up with. It's a genuine sense of paying it forward. They have this sense that somebody has helped them in the past, even if it's just in a past life. Therefore, they've got to go to pay it forward to a stranger. I experience it every single day that I'm in Greece. I think it's still present in a bunch of cultures, but the Greeks hang on to it. It's wonderful. So, practicing this radical form of kindness where you just go and do it, and I show a number of ways of doing it in the book. The Persian greeting for how are you, which generally results in someone going, yeah, busy, right? And nobody cares in the asking or the answering. The Persian version is, how is your heart in this breath? Now, even in the asking of the question, I become present, I become mindful, and I care. And then in the answering, of course, you're not going to go, I'm busy, you're going to give it a little bit more than that, right? So there's a number of practices I talk through, and I think we've just got to start to really enjoy them. Probably one of the most powerful things is being in nature. So there's more than 40,000 studies that have been done that shows all we've got to do is step our foot into nature, nature takes over from there. So there's a whole heap of things that go on, There are chemicals in trees that play a part. This is one of my favourite studies. Our retinas work to these patterns, these fractals, these repeated patterns, and so does nature. If you think of tidal pools, the petals on a flower, the beautiful um, frond work in a a tree fern, there's all these patterns that are repeated and they're beautiful. There's a congruence that happens when we're in nature and we see these fractal-like patterns, and we go straight to a sense of belonging. I am meant to be here in this. And now, once I'm in this expansive belonging state, once I'm in a kind, philotomous state, once I've connected and gone into congruence, I am then able to make far better, more discerning decisions. That is how we progress forward. The other thing that I'll throw into the mix, and it comes back to what I sense is some frustration and despair when you're an activist and you're trying your best and then it gets thrown back in your face, all of that stuff is happening everywhere. It's going to get worse. We've got to cop it. We're just going to have to fire up and talk to each other in forums like this, get together and have a bit of a bitch and a whine and then go onwards. There's something very particular and peculiar and magical about humans. We can do extraordinary things at the last minute. Now, if you think of almost every game, football game, basketball game, baseball game in history that's gone down, in history that we remember... Generally, what's happened is in the last final minute, the losing team does something kamikaze-like, like like it is ridiculous. They pull out some, you know, I don't know, Herculean effort and pick a goal that saves the game. Half the crowd have left because they're going, oh, there's no hope here. And the losing team finds some kind of, I call it group soul. And far too many games have been won in this manner for it to just be a one-off. This is what humans do. Humans mobilised in World War II in America, they mobilised from a consumer economy to a wartime economy in three weeks. No one thought it was possible. We hear stories of mothers that can pick up a massive car off their two-year-old child when they've been run over. These stories exist. This is what I believe humans are capable of. We are in that final 30 seconds of the game. We are the losing side. The planet will survive. We won't. We need to galvanise. We need to get our collective will on board. We're going to need people like you and your husband, like Greta Thunberg, to go out there and try risky things, to keep doing it, and then the weaker players, they'll join. The stronger players, they'll get even more um, emboldened. That is how we'll make this happen. We as humans have evolved, evolved, evolved. I don't think we go down in a fizzle. I don't think we got. No, oh, well, there's no point. The last thirty seconds, who cares? I don't think that's our storyline. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a big emotional thing, aren't you? I've only just met you, but <laughs> so um, everything's on the line. And uh, I said to someone the other day, I'm a bit of a wounded animal at the moment, and I'm a wounded animal who was raised by wolves. So <laughs> I'm both wounded on the ground and fucking want to tear something apart with my teeth. At yep. the same time, I think the question around agency and rest as resistance, like why I'm doing this issue of Dumbo Feather and why do Dumbo Feather at all? That's always a question. Can I tie it back briefly just to your thing? Just one thing I would say, I think this all does tie into rest. Rest plays a role in all of this. But what we've done in our culture is we've got this idea that we've got to do moderation. One of the best things we can do is accept that we need to pulse, rest, Full onness, rest, full onness, and we can pulse backwards and forwards. Beautiful, I love that. We don't have to find the middle point. And I think what's happened is the contemporary, very white, privileged self care movement has been all about finding this cherry picked version of things where we take all the nice bits of working hard and the neoliberal system and the nice bits of the restful, spiritual, soul care, and we bring it all together in this kind of cocktail of individualist, me, 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 silo thinking. And then it plays out as a severe, the slothful dude on the couch that gets obese from not taking charge and not being engaged in life and building and creating and all of this and all the things that actually do bring us joy. So I think rest is a really important thing, but not as as a way to find a middle ground. We pulse. And at the moment, we need to pulse. Why do we rest? Do we rest to become slothful and tuned out and kind of dreamy? No. We rest to restore so we can go back, we can go out into the world and support each other and do every bit of work that's required. That's the point. I agree with you 100%. If we're promoting the regeneration of our soil, health, of our land, of our earth, of our planet, of our systems design, then we need to be included in the regeneration. A whole lot of dead and emptied-out activists is not the rule of the game knowing what is best restoration is key and steering it to wind back to what you were saying, steering it to becoming mature adults. I thought it was beautiful and I love it around being a single woman. In traditional American Indigenous cultures, a woman's menstrual cycle was in three phases. So a young woman who gets her period is entering her power. A woman in the middle of her life experiencing her power a woman in menopause and beyond is her power and the idea is that as you hit menopause you no longer need your period to remind you of that journey of the power that's what I was saying to you before we changed tack I could hear the spaciousness in your thought landscape I could hear how well exercised fleshed out and journeyed it is and I'm so grateful for that because my thinking and feeling landscape and being landscape has been much interrupted with all the things that that I've chosen to do, like mothering. And we're sisters on the road together, both trying to contribute to the healing, the restoration, whatever it is. Can you say something about that experience? Yeah, I think that women have always had a very vital role to play as they get older. Some of the biggest thought leaders have come into their own in their 60s. Jane Fonda has done a bunch of interviews off the back of her climate book, which just came out. She talked about the fact that coming into her 60s, she decided to live a mostly single life because she had other work to do. She said also, it coincides obviously with the hormones dropping off. So the female hormones of nurturing and looking after other people and being very distracted drops away. And what happens is we have more testosterone. When you have been a woman all your life, And you have been very over-considerate, over-aware of everybody's feelings and making sure everyone's included. And then all of a sudden, your estrogen drops off and your testosterone comes forth. You have this type of power that resonates in this current world, but you're also able to use it in an inclusive way. And I very much feel it. You know, I've had to face the fact that I um, am single and I've been single for almost 15 years. I don't have children and I talk about my journey to process that grief throughout the book. It's sort of a third thread line, but it culminates in that penultimate chapter, becoming an adult, where I finally resolve it. So any woman who has struggled with having children and hasn't been able to find an identity around that, you might find the book beneficial from that point of view. Sometimes it's as unheroic as being rendered choiceless, which is a wonderful, beautiful Spiritual phrase, we often find our greatest power when we are rendered choiceless. And again, going back to Mary Oliver's grasshopper, the smaller that we go down, the the more that we tone down our desires, the more that we connect. So for me, I was rendered choiceless eventually because I had a raging autoimmune disease. I had bipolar, which is a responsibility for me to maintain it and to make sure I use it for service and use it in a way that doesn't harm people. And so I had all these other things and I realized I couldn't do them all. Um, I was rendered choiceless. And so I went, all right, well, if I'm going to have to do this this way, I'm going to do it like a motherfucker. (laughs) Like I'm just going to own the fact that I don't have children and I foster children. It's a lot of responsibility as a single mother doing it, but it hasn't taken a toll on my body, essentially. I've found incredible freedom, but, you know, I have had to choose a life that is unique and I've had to get comfortable with the fact that my, my life doesn't fit the mould. And that has been the hardest journey and it's a very lonely journey. In my aloneness, I've combated my ultimate loneliness I've had to go down into the depths of all that stuff to then emerge with a very accelerated sense of purpose and freedom and energy. I've got to do service to the fact that I wasn't a mother. It sounds very altruistic and so on. It's as pragmatic and truthful as I can put it because I have thought long, long, long and hard about it all. And quite frankly, I got bored of the poor me. I've missed out diatribe. I can either do that or I can go over here and design my own wild life. And I choose wild and I choose deviant. That's what I do. Well, thank God for the rest of us. You're a gift and one I've only just discovered. And uh, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. Oh, I like having you as my friend. Thank you. It's it's awesome. And um, thank you for your time. Thanks for the awesome questions and the and the tears of recognition.
1: So many Perlers in there for us. Thanks, Sarah, Barry, for illuminating the work that we need to do now and how we can summon the courage to do it. We make this podcast on the lands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations and the Urukwa people up in Byron Bay. I acknowledge traditional owners of these lands and elders past, present, and future. Shout out to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode. They do a brilliant job and a bit of a plug for the work we're doing at Small Giants Academy, which Dumbo Feather is a part of. We're about to launch a series of deep dive programs for next year on everything from storytelling to regen ag in the backyard, as well as a highly anticipated mastery of business and empathy. A nine-month program to equip you with tools, strategies, and philosophies for leading a purposeful organization and charting a hopeful vision for the world. You can find out about all of that over at Small Giants .com.au That's it from me, be well, and I'll see you next time on the Dumbo Feather Podcast.